This week on The Cameron Callan Show, we're talking about the latest developments in Brexit, and we're also talking about the I-word, impeachment. This is The Cameron Journal Podcast. This is The Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Happy weekend, everyone. This is Cameron Cowan. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. And this week, I have chosen a very small group of stories because we're going to talk about two very big things. Uh, One is Brexit and the end of prorogation in Parliament by court order. And then two, the new impeachment inquiry for Donald Trump. So before we get into the hot and heavy, I want to touch on a couple other big stories this week. One is from Mother Jones, and it's titled, No More Circular Firing Squad for Now. It's... This was written right on the 24th when impeachment broke. If you follow me on Twitter at Cameron Cowan, I remarked at the time, remember the 24th of September, because that was a big day in history. And as we're thinking about impeachment, I also I, I, I liked this article when I came across it, because for those people who had any experience in the left community politically in this country. You know that there can be what President Obama lovingly calls the circular firing squad. In terms of when someone on the left does something wrong, we have a very bad habit of throwing people out first and asking questions later. Um, For example, see Al Franken. Um, He was doing something funny and comedic on a comedy tour in Iraq 15 years ago, and he was forced out of the Senate. Um, And that's the type of thing where, you know, and obviously in the age of Me Too, that was considered appropriate and all this sort of thing. But the circular firing squad can start when people start, in the midst of something important going on, people start criticizing other people about how things are going or how things are going on and they're not going the right way and all this type of thing. And oftentimes a lot of things in the left fall apart before they even have a chance to get off the ground because people end up, you know, over-criticizing the people who are doing them. And so the story starts off like this. He says, just to get this off my chest, this is Kevin Drum from Mother Jones. I hope I don't have to sit through too many rounds of griping from various slightly different factions of the progressive movement about how impeachment has been handled well or how badly by Nancy Pelosi and more generally by Democrats in Congress. Whatever else you can say, none of this is their fault. It's the fault of the Republican Party that went over the edge of partisan rage and destruction long ago. They're the ones who tried at every turn to prevent President Obama from rescuing the economy after he took office. They're the ones who are willing to die on the hill of protecting tax cuts for the rich. They're the ones who have relentlessly gerrymandered and suppressed the black vote because that's good for Republicans. They're the ones who've spent years trying to tar Hillary Clinton over Benghazi. 
They're the ones who stonewalled the nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. They're the ones who got so caught up in their own loathing of Hillary Clinton that they turned away from the pussy tape and voted for Trump anyway. They're the ones who spent their first year in office desperately trying to take away health care for the poor and working classes. Democrats don't always cover themselves in glory, but Trump is in office because the Republican Party put him there, and he has gotten away with everything so far because the Republican Party has let him. No one should ever forget that. It's a short story. It's a little bit of commentary. But it's a helpful reminder. Oftentimes in the left, we forget who the opposition is. I don't want to use the word enemy because we're all Americans. But we, we forget who it is we're going up against and what it is we're going up against in all the politics of, of 2020, which has taken a backseat this week, except for Joe Biden. And we'll get to that. Um, the people have not properly noticed and or taken into account the many crimes of the Republican Party in this whole process keeping in mind that the Republican Party did put him there. And oftentimes on the left, we get we get stuck in purity tests and different ideas. And as I said, when we talk about 2020, there's an old saying about the Democrats. Democrats need to fall in love with the candidate. Republicans fall in line. The Republican Party can put up anybody and get Republican voters to vote for him, e.g. Donald Trump. <clears throat> And so it is it is troubling because in this whole process, in order for this to happen and in order to galvanize for public support, which is only at about 30 percent right now, it requires Democrats to fall in line. It needs to be something that we get behind, we back we support and we don't overly criticize those who are doing it because it wasn't done in just the right way that we think it ought and should be done. It's important to keep perspective. It's important to make sure that we keep our eye on the prize as a as a movement. You know, ever since he got into office, it's been hashtag resistance and there's been comedic commentary and political commentary and cultural commentary and all this sort of thing. And there has been this whole idea that we're we're going to resist it every chance and we're going to stop them from getting away with their agenda. It's go time, everyone. I impeachment is here. It's go time. It's really happening. People are finally getting what they want. And that means that we're going to have to put aside our internal differences and our petty squabbling, and we're going to have to make sure that this comes off elegantly. And that means we're going to have to lay aside some of our own internal issues until after this is all over. And it is that's going to be a difficult thing to do because Republicans are far more willing to put up with some of the issues and problems of their own commentators and their own people. And they're a lot more forgiving of people's own issues in the democrat party we tend to be a lot more objective fact-based 
you know, we tend to look at things from a different perspective. And for many people, if they don't like what someone has done, that person's done and they're not going to, you know, follow them or have anything to do with them any further. They just completely disassociate themselves. In this whole democratic process, we need to get behind the leadership that we have, not the leadership we wish we had, the leadership that we have and get behind them and make sure that we're behind them all the way. This is going to be a long process. And Pete, for those of us who are old enough to remember 1998, or some of my listeners who are old enough to remember 1974, impeachment is not a fast process. Nixon stopped the impeachment process when he resigned in 1974, so we didn't look through the whole thing. For those of us that remember 1998, it was a long process. The Ken Starr report was a year and a half. Impeachment was another solid six months. This impeachment process will not be over till sometime in spring, early summer of 2020. And so we need to make sure that we, you know, stay focused, everyone, on the prize and the goal. And we're going to return to how the impeachment process works and all of that. Um, But right now, I want to touch a little bit on Greta Thunberg, who is at the UN this week at the UN Climate Summit. Um, she created some pretty memeable moments, but also put, she also made some really tremendous statements, um, including statements about what inaction on climate change is doing for for children and for her generation and how important it it is for them. And it, it's amazing that someone who's only 16 years old can speak so poignantly and articulately and so easily. One of the great quotes the which is kind of what we call the the how dare you moment she says this is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you are doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. And it's the... Her trip, even her arrival in New York, she came by boat. Um, She sailed from Sweden to New York by boat in a very green way. Um, her whole, uh, her whole, her whole movement—the way she's been speaking around Europe and addressing the EU and all this type of thing—and then coming to the United Nations. Her whole, um, her whole movement has been, I think, so emblematic of the hopelessness and the desperation that a lot of young people feel about the climate issue and the fact that within their lifetimes the weather will have changed the climate will have changed um we have oceans that are dying we have huge planetary problems as a as a result of the way the economy works and the way we are all living and that unprecedented changes are indeed required And somehow this young 
Swedish girl has taken it upon herself to say what other people will not say, to do what other people will not do, to um, to bring a focus to climate change that is pretty unprecedented. It will be interesting to see what she does as time goes on, because I don't... I imagine we'll be hearing a lot more of Miss Thunberg. Um, and that is... It, it's a breath of fresh air. I... Those of you who... Um, who followed my work for any length of time know that I did uh, a, a long essay on climate change, and it appears in my new book out on October 1st at CameronJournal.com. And I, I have some... Some problems with climate change, both the science and the narrative. And every time I look into climate change, the more confused I get. So I'm I'm not as strident on the issue as she is. But I will say this when it comes to our use of water, our waste, agricultural runoff with pesticides, all this sort of thing. And these other problems, there is a huge problem in all of those areas and it's not just plastics in the oceans it's pesticides it's fishing nets it's dumping in some cases of raw sewage it's dumping of raw chemicals that has gone on um and sometimes just household trash for many years new york city's trash plan was to put it on a barge sell it out to the ocean and dump the whole thing in the ocean this is the way we've been treating the ocean for a long time and the ecosystem is finally breaking down we need to change how we deal with waste which means we also need to change how we deal with consumption and that is a move forward that we all need to work on making, choosing companies that are already doing that, moving corporations and demanding with our own voices that these changes begin. And some of them are. Um, there's tremendous potential in new, more sustainable fuels. Um, for instance, you can turn algae into oil. Um, and you can, uh, you can actually use that to fly even in airplanes. Um, I, there was a, a Delta has already, um, used biofuels in, in jets and it is cleaner and reduces environmental impact and is not fossil fuel based. Those are the type of changes that the whole globe needs to embrace. That technology needs to be spread all over the world. And those are the type of changes that will really begin to move the needle on climate change to prevent the coming changing in temperatures and warming that is going to happen. But there's also adaptability. To some greater or lesser degree, we've already gone too far. And in order to make a more sustainable future, which after the essay on climate change, I follow up with my plan for 100% sustainable future, we also need to make sure that whatever we do, we can repeat it. We're not unnecessarily extracting if we don't have to. And we're, we're, we're giving ecosystems and nature a chance to live on their own and exist on their own. We are all dependent on natural ecosystems. And when those ecosystems break down, so will we. And that is something that regardless of what you might think about climate change, which you might think about the science, is incredibly important. And Greta Thunberg is to be commended for being willing to come out into an international audience and say it and 
say her truth and say the truth and express the outrage that I think many young people feel on the issue of climate change. We have been talking about climate change environmentalism since the 70s. We've been talking about a changing climate since the 90s when I was a kid. And while much progress has been made in those areas, very little progress has been made in really curbing industrial waste, really curbing pollution. And in the meantime, nations like India and China have come online um, adding more pollution than Europe and the United States. You can see in tracking, you know, carbon output, you can see, uh, you know, as, you know, in <clears throat> maps and things, how, you know, the, the developing world has, their coming online has radically changed the conversation about climate and climate change. And so... Uh, good on Greta. She, like I said, she competed in the news cycle this week and caused a huge, um, a, a huge uh, wave at the UN. And she is a tremendous hope for the future in the conversation on climate change. Of course, as you can imagine, this has caused no shortage of criticism from people on the right, people have compared her to looking like a girl from a fascist propaganda poster. I've seen that one a lot. Um, I've also, you know, claim, you know, had people, people claim that she's proposing, you know, global fascist reforms. I've also seen people claim that, uh, she is, uh, that, you know, she's a, a pawn for the global elite. And, it's interesting because there's also been art. There was an article in the Guardian that said the usual criticisms of the right don't work on her because she doesn't, uh, because of how she operates, doesn't operate from a personal perspective. She operates from scientific consensus, and that I think is vitally important in the way that she speaks and the way that she talks about climate change. A lot of the old criticisms don't necessarily stick. Um, even people who are kind of like, oh, well, if you think, you know, climate change should be guided by a 16-year-old girl, what are you thinking sort of thing? And other far worse things that I won't mention. Um, I, th I think it's kind of amazing how through all the smearing and all the criticizing, she's still here. She's not afraid. She's speaking out. And I think this type of activism is something we can continue to look forward to from... Gen Z. I think they're they're going to be making waves and far-reaching changes that this is only the beginning. There'll be more Greta Thunbergs. There'll be more Parkland kids. There'll be more people who are actively and stridently showing the world how how it should be and what changes we should make and how to create a better future for everyone going forward. And go Greta. I don't agree with her entirely, but go Greta. It's time someone was brave enough to say the un... what cannot be said. It's brave enough for someone to admit what is going on and to call out leaders around the world for not taking greater action um, and creating the changes necessary to move the conversation forward on helping everyone live in a more sustainable and economically beneficial way.
So we're going to leave Greta and climate change alone, and we're going to talk about the <laughs> complete chit show that is uh, WeWork and Uber. So for those that might not have noticed, because it was a busy news week, <laughs> um, WeWork is a company that rents out shareable office space. There are some companies that have all their office space in WeWork and they they rent out a certain amount of dedicated space where you can just hot desk it with the people. There's multiple options. They have locations all over the world. Um, you can get memberships. It, it's basically office space as a service. And... Uh, when WeWork was started, it was kind of hailed as the future of commercial office space. It was great for startups, and they build themselves as raising consciousness and all this sort of thing. And it was an interesting concept for a long time. They gained a lot of investment from, from people, including the Japanese investment bank SoftBank, which owns and invests in tons of things. And... This week, WeWork, the last couple of weeks, WeWork has attempted to go public and do an IPO. However, the problem is WeWork has invested $20 billion to build their business, but they've never turned a profit. They've never made money. They keep losing money. And there is no point in which they can scale up large enough in order to actually make money um the person who called one of the people who called this out first that i listened to and if you don't listen to their podcast you should um is scott galloway on pivot recode pivot with kara swisher um there scott galloway was the first person who really talked about the issue with the WeWork ipo and looking at their s1 which is one of their disclosure documents they have to fill out um in order to issue common shares of stock on a public exchange and uh the, the issue with WeWork is basically purely financial. The concept is nice, but they're basically a $5 billion real estate company. Oh, the only problem is they spent $20 billion to build a $5 billion real estate company. And what is interesting is this week in the midst of this kind of inability to do this IPO and, and reach the public market is their, their founder and CEO, Adam Newman, resigned this week. And there was a lot of criticism criticism of Adam because he made some questionable personal financial decisions. I guess he bought a surf company and all sorts of crazy things. And the board of directors didn't really rein him in on um, how he was growing the company, what the profitability plan was, what he was spending his own money on. There was also an issue where he apparently personally owned the branding and licensed it to WeWork and paid himself like a obscene amount of money. And the board of directors never stopped that from happening. So the... The WeWork IPO is going nowhere, and it's unclear what the future of the company is going to be. Um, they were talking about what the future of WeWork might look like with new management on Pivot this week, and I have not... I didn't finish listening to it before I had to record my own show. Um, I was listening to it in the car this morning when I was taking care of some business. And... Um, 
it's it's not quite sure how you know how that company will proceed all this sort of thing but the the i think we work is the beginning of a major reset in the whole idea of commodifying everything and i think indeed the larger gig economy because softbank who created this kind of we work mess is also the major investor of uber now uber's problem Uber did get to an IPO, but Uber's problem is Uber also has never made money and isn't really on track to make any money without significantly raising prices. And the question always has been, how do we get to a point where Uber can maintain the low prices that they become known for being lower than taxi companies and actually make money and turn a profit so that their stock can rise for shareholders? And Uber has come under a lot of fire because of their employment practices, i.e. they make sure that the people who drive for them are not employees, which California has actually changed now. And um, and they have basically through investment have subsidized the ability for all of us to run around town um, in cheap inexpensive transportation and they also through not paying their workers at least the minimum wage have also enabled uh, you know us to run around you know very inexpensively and in cases of some people have been you know able to give up their cars and so uh this one of the things with things like uber and just the whole gig economy is if you're not paying people well and these jobs are occupying an ever greater portion of the economy then basically the people who are shouldering the cost burden of our ability to have food brought to our houses in order to be able to, you know, to to hail a ride quickly and easily with an app and get around cheaply is not only the investors who are not getting their money back are subsidizing it, but also those people who actually perform the work, who end up working, especially if you're doing it full time, 10, 11 hour days, or if you're doing it part time, whatever have you, um, they're shouldering the cost burden of the convenience. And I think that's something that is a problem across the entirety of the gig, of the gig economy. Airbnb is going to be going public early in 2020 and Airbnb, not only have they had a problem with not always paying hotel taxes in every jurisdiction, in some cases they have opted to do so while also saying they're not a hotel company, which is a weird thing they've done and tried to do. Um, they, they also have wreaked havoc on the, the rental housing market of many major cities where people just buy property and then just rent it out through Airbnb rather than letting it be on the public market for people to actually live in. And so in this whole everything is a commodity gig economy sort of thing, um, there has been a huge problem with making sure that people are fairly compensated for this work. And I think with Uber not making money, WeWork not going public, I think people are finally 
the gig economy is finally coming is finally coming to a head. People are realizing it isn't the golden promise that everyone thought it was going to be. It's not actually sustainable. It's oftentimes not profitable. And people are really just being exploited and taken advantage of. And I think I don't think this is necessarily the beginning of the end, but it might be the beginning of the beginning of the end. I will be interested to see how many of these companies survive five years from now. I will be interested to see if we still have <clears throat> ride hailing services or DoorDash or any of these things that we've all gotten used to five years from now. Because unless autonomous driving suddenly really becomes a thing in the nearby future, I don't know that any of these things are going to be able to survive. Especially if you start insisting people get paid for them, they're going to have to raise prices, which means demand is going to go down. I just don't know how sustainable all of, all of this is. And I think the tremendous promises of the gig economy and all the things that we were promised in terms of what we all thought the future of the gig economy was going to be and how everything was going to be a commodity and a service and all this type of thing, I don't necessarily know if that's going to exist for very much longer, simply because it's not financially sustainable unless it's subsidized by a large, poorly run investment bank. So that I, I thought that was an interesting thing this week. I'll be interested to see what the future of WeWork as a company is. I'll be interested to see what the future of the gig economy is moving forward. Um, I, yeah, I think it will be interesting to see how, how that, how that will go. So kind of take note that, you know, Uber may not be around for much longer. Um, I don't think they're in danger of like closing down tomorrow and leaving people stranded, but I think at some point they're going to have to find a way to become profitable or die off. I think WeWork is going to have to figure out a way to make a $5 billion real estate business work and what is that going to look like and how is that going to work and how much of a loss is SoftBank going to take on it are they going to have to raise prices and I think in the future when companies come out and try to commodify something and create X as a service I think people are going to be a lot more careful with looking at what the profitability is there what are the margins what is the scale and how might all of that work so we're gonna move on and move across the pond to the fun happening in brexit which really heated up this week so this week <clears throat> the uk supreme court ruled that boris johnson's prorogation of Parliament was unlawful because he lied to the Queen about its purpose. Um, and they uh, ended the prorogation by court order. So context, what happened? How does this all work? So in the American system, um, the House and the Senate agree upon recesses one house cannot meet without the other constitutionally in the uk because they're a constitutional monarchy it is different um parliament can decide its own recesses and adjournments however a a sitting a session of parliament like congress has sessions every two years by election and a new congress starts after an election of the house of representatives so 
in Britain, it works differently. Um, the parliament decides when a sitting ends, when they're going to close parliament and start a new sitting with a new political agenda, beginning with the royal opening of parliament with the queen and having a queen's speech where she articulates what the political agenda from the government is going to be. So... When Boris Johnson took over from Theresa May, his there was a, a kind of a long time where Brexit could be stopped, negotiated, or laws could be passed between when he took power and when they're supposed to leave the European Union at eleven fifty, you know, at eleven at twelve oh one on October thirty first. Um, so in order to make sure that Brexit couldn't be stopped by calling a general election or having a second referendum or revoking Article 50, which is unlikely but still a possibility, um, Boris Johnson decided to prorogue Parliament. Now, in order to prorogue Parliament in the British system, the Queen dismisses Parliament. She can also dismiss the Prime Minister, but the Queen does not usually exercise those political powers without the consent of the elected government. So what happens is when the Prime Minister wants to end a parliamentary sitting <clears throat> and begin another parliamentary sitting, he goes to the Queen and requests her to use her sovereign right to prorogue her Parliament. So um, that's what Boris Johnson did in order to stop further negotiation on Brexit and to kind of cut Parliament out of the Brexit process. He asked to be for Parliament to be prorogued in early September and uh, and said that the Parliament would sit again on October 14th, giving them only a couple of weeks to... Um, do anything with Brexit before the October 31st deadline. So the opposition parties and others took the government to court. Um, in Scotland, the Scottish court ruled that the prorogation was illegal. It continued on to the UK Supreme Court, and they determined that the prorogation was illegal and politically motivated, both for its length and its purpose, and the parliament could be sit begin sitting immediately. So that happened on the 24th, Tuesday, and Boris Johnson was in New York doing a speech at the UN and had to fly home because Parliament began sitting again the very next day. So they did a very raucous Prime Minister's question. It was something of significance that Boris Johnson basically got it handed to him that his political gambit move to make Brexit happen on October 31st, do or die, as he put it, um, wasn't going to work and wasn't going to happen. And the fact that he, you know, lied to the Queen about the purposes of prorogation was put on all the newspapers. Um, and he, I don't believe, has won a single vote so far. Every time he has put something to a vote, including they, he tried to pass a parliamentary recess for the Conservative Party conference. That didn't even pass. No people, members of his own party don't want to vote for stuff he's he's voting on. He's dismissed 42 MPs from his own party. He doesn't even have a majority in parliament right now. And so the 
the whole British political system basically is breaking down. You're having these political gambits going on to try to force something through the parliament clearly does not want the eu withdrawal agreement negotiation is going nowhere there is nothing concrete set in stone they're still playing chicken with the eu and brexit day the new deadline which was supposed to have keep in mind this was supposed to happen back in march then it got pushed to april then it got pushed to june now it's pushed to october is supposed to happen in a handful of days i'm recording this on friday september 27th and this will be up by october 31st so we're talking less than 40 days and right now nothing seems to be actionably moving forward and boris johnson cannot find a win anywhere in his government the courts are on are not on his side or his own party isn't on his side and what's amazing is people asked him if he planned on resigning and he said absolutely not even amid all of this scandal so where does brexit go from here basically right now there's a couple things going on one is they're still preparing for so-called hard brexit that means leaving the EU without a deal and everything goes to WTO rules, including all the EU's rules for trade with non-member states. That is going to be a logistical nightmare and will require a hard border in Northern Ireland, which will most likely cause um, violence of people who do not want a hard border in Northern Ireland as it is a harsh reminder that Britain still rules part of Ireland. And if you want to know more about that, you can go look into the Troubles and the Good Friday Agreement that was signed in 1998. Um, and that's kind of one option, and that's, I think, what Boris Johnson has been trying to push for. Option number two is that they come to a new withdrawal agreement that does something with the Northern Irish backstop and uh, there is they find some way to maintain the integrity of the common market without a hard border Northern Ireland, which I don't think is technically possible. No one has said it's technically possible. Um, they say there's they want to do quote-unquote alternative arrangements, but none have been proposed. So that's still a potentiality. Um, and the number three is they could revoke Article 50 and end this whole madness. Or they could do something else that I'm not even thinking of. Um, there's a great channel on YouTube called TLDR News that um, they are British and cover it locally. They're a really great channel and a really great resource to get the idea of what all the options are, what all the moving parts are, all this type of thing. And their videos are pretty short and super informative. So if you want to know more about the Brexit process, I would highly encourage you to go watch TLDR News. Um, it's it's worth 20 minutes of videos to catch up on what's going on with the whole Brexit process. The other big bit of news that happened the same day Boris Johnson got told not so fast with the prorogation is Nancy Pelosi came out on national television and announced that she is launching an official impeachment inquiry into President Donald J. Trump in regards to a very questionable phone call he had with the president of Ukraine over an arms deal and a favor involving Joe Biden. So let's start from the beginning. So we managed to get to a place 
in our country that's very grave. And this has only happened three times, four times before. And usually when it happens, it's an extremely serious moment for the country. Usually something quite dire and quite dangerous has happened. Now, in a presidency where there is seemingly a major scandal every other day, and that's just Tuesday, the type of scandal that has finally moved impeachment forward doesn't seem like it should be that big of a scandal. It doesn't seem like it's something that would cause an impeachment inquiry to happen. And yet somehow it has become the final straw. So you may have heard on Tuesday, Nancy Pelosi came on to a press conference and said that she was beginning a formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump. And I want to do this in two parts. I want to talk about the whistleblower complaint and the call with Ukraine. And I also want to talk about how impeachment works, because there's a lot of people who have some strange ideas um, and some people may not have been alive the last time we did this process in 1998. So. And some people might not remember it was a long time ago. Um, I was 10 in 1998 and I'm 31 now so do the math on that um the this all started when it came out that a government federal employee um came to the inspector general um every agency has an inspector general came to the inspector general and the director of national intelligence with a complaint about how um, certain classified information was being handled by the White House. The director of national intelligence checked with the White House and the Justice Department to see if the complaint was legitimate. They found that it was legitimate. And um, that whistleblower complaint was made public by The New York Times. The New York Times has since released the information that it was a CIA analyst who was working in the White House and had access to White House information at the time. The part of the complaint beyond the Ukraine phone call, which I'll get to in a moment, has primarily to do with how information is being handled at the White House. Now, the other part of the complaint was a supposed quid pro quo deal between President Trump and the president of the Ukraine regarding Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Now, here's what happened back in the days of the Obama administration. You may recall Russia annexed Crimea, which was part of Ukraine and made it part of Russia. Um, Ukraine has been tied in a civil war ever since with Russian-backed fighters in eastern Ukraine against the federal government in Odessa. Not Odessa. Um, I forget the capital of Ukraine. Scratch that. Fighters against the federal government of Ukraine. And the... um, 
Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, was on the board of a gas company that did business in Ukraine. He was making $50,000 a month. Um, in the aftermath of the Civil War, Joe Biden was doing negotiation as vice president in the Ukraine, and there was a prosecutor who was prosecuting corruption in Ukraine's gas industry. Ukraine's gas industry is notoriously corrupt. People in Ukraine have made billions of dollars off gas in Ukraine. Ukraine is fossil fuel rich, and it's also a rather cold place. So natural gas is something that is a, a huge business, both in export and in local use. And he was a part of this energy company, and apparently this energy company and Hunter Biden, by extension, were being investigated for possible corruption in Ukraine. Um, at the time, apparently, Joe Biden had said, this investigation needs to stop. This is a problem. Um, make it go away. This is not working. And it it did, although the investigation, according to the Ukrainian government, never went anywhere. There was never any problems. And that prosecutor was removed. There was a change of government in Ukraine. There was a lot of drama around that with how Russia was trying to manipulate it. They tried to kill one of the candidates, Poroshenko. That was a whole thing because there was a Russian-backed candidate and there was a, a, a Ukrainian nationalist candidate. Keeping in mind, Ukraine came under Russian, Russian crosshairs for signing a trade agreement with the European Union that would have been the beginning of the process of them joining the European Union. So, the... So that kind of had all had, had happened. So with this prosecution and Joe Biden doing this negotiation and talking about how his son wasn't being investigated, Donald Trump called the new president of Ukraine, who was elected in April, a Mr. Zelensky, and said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. We're supposed to send you $250 million of military aid to help in your civil war. The Europeans aren't paying enough, but we're the ones paying the bills. I need you to do me a favor. He used those exact words. And the favor was, can you please reopen the investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden? Because there's something there. And it would be helpful to me if you would investigate them in regards to corruption in the Ukrainian gas industry. And... Zelensky, wanting to make sure that the check went through, um, said, yes, of course, I can see about it. That investigation didn't seem to go anywhere, but I can certainly look into that for you as well. I think he was looking out for the Ukrainian national interest. They're desperate for cash. In this call, Trump basically used congressionally authorized foreign aid as a leverage ship to target a political ally. That phone call, the transcript of which has been released and is available at CNN.com and elsewhere. And the fact that a whistleblower has come out saying that this is the type of way that White House has done business has finally moved the needle on getting Nancy Pelosi to allow an impeachment inquiry to start. That's how we got where we are. And I promise it's 46 minutes. We are not going to do an hour and a half show today, which is why this is the last story where I'm going to try to keep it tight. So... The impeachment inquiry has started. What happens now? How does impeachment work? So how impeachment begins is they begin with an inquiry, which is basically a really wide ranging investigation. So back in 1998, when Ken Starr released his report on the Whitewater land deal and subsequently also discovered the affair that was happening between Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, 
in the midst of all of that, the House of Representatives opened an impeachment inquiry based upon the Whitewater investigation, the special report from Ken Starr, and the illicit um, sexual affair with a young staffer named Monica Lewinsky. And what happened is that you begin with an investigation, which is basically gathering evidence. The House will hold hearings, the, actually the first of which happened on Thursday with the Director of National Intelligence, who's a Trump appointee. Um, and uh, they there will be questions, there'll be investigations, documents will be subpoenaed. Um, today, as I was getting ready to record this, Mike Pompeo was... Um, subpoenaed to turn over evidence in regards to the Ukraine call and other documentation in regards to the House impeachment inquiry. Um, Trump's special envoy to the Ukraine has resigned. He will be appearing next week. The Things are moving rapidly now. So once the inquiry is completed, the House representatives will begin drawing up the what's called the Articles of Impeachment. This is basically legislation that states what the inquiry found and if it meets the standard in Article two of the constitution regarding high crimes and misdemeanors it, it's treason bribery and high crimes and misdemeanors congress shall have the sole power to impeach based upon treason bribery or high crimes and misdemeanors now you impeachment is a unique process because high crimes and misdemeanors is a catch-all term the founders chose to think of crimes that would exist in the future and the Congress, because impeachment is a political process, it is not a legal process, Congress can determine and define what high crimes and misdemeanors are. Um, impeachment need not be for a crime, it can be for unethical conduct, it can be con it, it can be for conduct contravening the best interests of the United States. Congress decides what high crimes and misdemeanors are. It is defined by the Articles of Impeachment. So what happens is once the inquiry is over, they um, drop the Articles of Impeachment, and then that goes to the House floor for a vote. Um, in the House, if the Articles of Impeachment pass the House by a simple majority, then the impeachment process begins its trial phase in the Senate. Now, what happens is the, the impeachment goes to the Senate. The uh, proceedings are overseen by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And the Senate sits as jury. And representatives from the House present the evidence from the articles of impeachment to the Senate as jury. The Senate then votes. It takes 67 votes for impeachment to pass the Senate and get a conviction. Less than 67 votes... It's acquitted and the process stops. If the 67 votes are achieved and the Senate convicts him for the high crimes and misdemeanors, as outlined in the Articles of Impeachment, then the president can be removed from office. So if people think that impeachment means Trump is going away tomorrow, that is not true. There's a, a three-step process. You have the inquiry, which is investigation. You have the articles of impeachment in the House. You have the jury trial in the Senate, where the Senate serves as the jury um, to decide to convict or acquit the president based upon the evidence that the House has gathered. The In the past... In the past times this has happened, in 1998, we went through the entire process. The Senate acquitted Bill Clinton, and he was not removed from office. He was in a second term. He left office in 2001. Um, in 1974, 
with Watergate, Nixon resigned when the articles of impeachment were drawn up and were about to be voted on the, in the House. So the process stopped because he was removed from office. In the case of Andrew Johnson, um, in and during Reconstruction after the Civil War, he was acquitted by the Senate. No president has ever been removed by cause of impeachment so far. So we're embarking on a long process. And I. it's also important to remember this is all happening in an election year. And that's where this has been a very bad week for Joe Biden, because as this House impeachment inquiry goes along, the Republicans are going to keep the focus on Joe Biden and his son and their Ukraine connection and the foreign problems. And, oh, he's not so different than Trump on foreign connections, all this sort of thing. And, 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 quid, and quid pro quo. As the Ukraine deal gets unpacked, Biden's name is going to keep coming up in this scandal as well. This has been a great week for someone named Elizabeth Warren, who's currently polling number one in New Hampshire. Biden's whole raison d'etre for running for president was his electability. That is now seriously in question due to his familial connection to this scandal and the fact that when he was in when he was vice president, he was in, involved in talking to Ukraine about some corruption investigation that was going into his son. This is not a good week for Joe Biden. And this impeachment is going to inform every single vote moving forward. We're going to be voting Iowa caucuses are in January 22nd, New Hampshire primaries in February, and the, this impeachment process will be heating up as people are going to the polls to pick a Democrat nominee. This is huge. This doesn't happen in 239 years of the Republic. This has happened a handful of times, and it's only ever been completed all the way through twice. So... It is extremely serious what is going on. It's going to be a long process. Don't expect it to be easy. Some of the media coverage all has already been a little bit crazy because people are kind of like, so how will the vote in the Senate go? That's, pro th that's pr part three. We still have House of Representatives inquiry. We have... You know, we have to do articles of impeachment, figure out what those articles of impeachment are. Those have to pass the House before it goes to the Senate. The Senate part is all it's important because the Senate is controlled by Republicans as the Senate was controlled by Democrats in 1998. It's a, that's an important portion. But we have two big steps to get through before we even have to start deciding, OK, if there are there any GOP senators who might cross over and vote for this. One of the things they can do in the House, because Trump has dozens of, emol of emoluments clause violations, which is an impeachable offense because it is unconstitutional to make money from your public office. Um, and all these Trump scandals, the House can draw up several articles of impeachment and each one of them have to be voted on. So they can do a, a shotgun approach and write... 50 articles of impeachment and maybe get 10 passed. Whatever ones of all the ones they decide to write are passed will go to the Senate for the jury trial overseen by the Chief Justice of, of the Supreme Court. It is possible that an impeachment inquiry might be opened and nothing will be found. That is a possibility, but it's extremely unlikely. We already have some proof of quid pro quo with Ukraine. If they only do that... 
that's already a problem that can already be at least two articles of impeachment if they decide to go for all of it and i think they should just absolutely everything obstruction from the Mueller report um, emoluments clause violations with using his public office for his own political gain and his own properties all this sort of thing that is that i mean that's already you know that's several more articles of impeachment so that you know the House inquiry will probably end up finding articles of impeachment. You, you don't usually start the impeachment process if there's not something pretty obvious. So then it has to pass the House. Those articles of impeachment have to be well presented. They have to be compelling. And most importantly, you have to sell this to the public. We are heading into an election year. All of this is happening with the background of representatives were going to be up a third of the Senate is going to be up in 2020. And all of this is going to be happening and churning through in the background of a presidential election and an election in general. And that's going to weigh heavily on what articles they choose, how that works and who votes. According to reports, you know, the, all the Democrats in the House support some type of, of impeachment, depending on what the articles of impeachment say. So because it passes by a simple majority, if all the Democrats vote for it, it should pass the House. Then in the Senate, you need, the Democrats have 43 seats in the Senate. In order to convict, you have to find 24 GOP senators who are willing to break with their party and sacrifice their own political fortunes to cross over and vote to remove him from office by convicting him in the Senate. I think that's unlikely. The smart money says we're probably not going to get a conviction in the Senate. I tend to agree with that. I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think that exposing this entire process and exposing Trump for who and what he is as a presidential election is proceeding may bode very well for the Democrats as people go to the polls a year and a couple months from now. I think it will bode I think it will show the complicity that the Republican Party has shown in allowing Trump to get away with all that he's gotten away with and how they have not held him accountable when they were in power for the first few years he was in office. I think it is um it is something where unlike the Mueller report, which was supposed to kind of be a, a hit piece that never really happened. I think this is the type of thing where keeping this in the news and exposing all the horrible things that Trump has done and the way he has acted and comported himself as president, people will come around. When it comes to public support for impeachment, it sits at about 20, 30 percent. People forget when the when the Watergate trial started, Nixon boasted approval ratings of 60 or 65 percent. His approval ratings didn't get underwater until practically the whole process was over. And keep in mind, the whole impeachment process did not go through with Nixon. He resigned. And only at the very last couple months did people really finally start abandoning him in polls. So keep your powder dry. Strap in for the long haul. This is not going to be a short process. It's not going to be easy. A lot's going to be happening. I'll try to do my best to cover impeachment every single week and keep up on what's going on, why it's going on, put it all in context for you. But keep your powder dry. Stay strapped in. But this is this is a serious week for news. 
um, for sure. So I'm going to make sure that we don't go over an hour. So I'm going to end it here. Thank you for listening to the Cameron Journal podcast. And I will see you next week. If you'd like to catch up with me, catch me on Twitter at Cameron Cowan. Visit CameronJournal.com for new blog posts every week. And feel free to find me on Facebook or all your favorite social media platforms. Until next time, this is the Cameron Journal Podcast, and I'm Cameron Cowan.